everyone. This is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Caroline Williams from the University of California at Berkeley and Dr. Eric Riddell from Iowa State University. They both recently joined us for a webinar on their research involving climate change and the ecophysiological effects of changing global temperatures on organismal biology and survival. Let's dive in. This question is for you, Caroline. Does burrowing depth vary with elevation? Yeah, that's a great question. So the short answer is in our system, we really don't know because it's very, very hard to find these tiny little beetles. So Kevin has spent many hours, and Nathan as well, I'm sure, digging around in the soil trying to find the beetles, and it's just very hard to find them. So we have pretty limited information from one experiment that a collaborator, John Smiley, did where he sort of caged beetles around a willow and found them subsequently in the soil, which is our only information on where they overwinter. But more broadly, I think that is a really interesting question. Ray Huey and Mike Kearney have been doing some work on this question showing that, you know, the deeper you burrow, the more you're protected from extreme cold temperatures. So we would expect that in colder habitats, say, you know, dry years or elevations where it's particularly cold, burrowing deeper would be an effective way to escape the cold. So I think that's a wide open question. I'm not sure if the beetles are the the system to address it in since it's so hard to find them, but definitely important. Great. Okay, this next question is for you, Eric. What would be the advantage of the salamanders becoming leakier during wet periods? Why not just be non-leaky year-round? Right. This is a really great question. And I ask the same one myself. And I think it's important to remember that salamanders are a walking lung. And in order for even for you as a human, in order to breathe, your lung actually needs to be wet, have moisture on it so that oxygen can dissolve into the moisture and then diffuse into your bloodstream. So that moisture on the skin is really important for being able to breathe. And we actually find this really, really tight association with skin's resistance to water loss and metabolic rate. And specifically, as organisms become more watertight and less leaky, we see a simultaneous decline in their ability to breathe and, and, respirate, or, uh, and respire metabolically. So now, you know, okay, well, then why don't you just like keep a low metabolic rate too? Because then, you know, uh, you're not burning anything. Well, that's also a big problem if you want to do things like defend your territory and reproduce. If you actually want to get work done, uh, not being able to breathe is uh, not a good strategy for doing work. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Awesome. All right. This next question is for you, Caroline. Do you see any evidence for evolutionary shifts in thermotolerance within this species? Yeah, so Nathan and Elizabeth have done a lot of work of finding um, some genes that are impacted in lots of aspects of thermal tolerance. So heat tolerance, even cold tolerance, some of these genes of central metabolism, so particularly phosphoglucose isomerase or PGI, succinate dehydrogenase, 
There's lots of linkages between genes and these important metabolic and thermal tolerance phenotypes. And these genes sort of change over latitude and they change over elevation and they change over the season. And so we're sort of our next step is to start to understand how these genes impact winter survival. But we really think that there is genetic variation that determines the response and that that variation might be under differential selection in snowy years and dry years. So that's one of the hypotheses that we're testing at the moment. But we do think that there is going to be the potential for evolutionary change in these traits. But if the snow is sort of creating these interannual fluctuations, that might actually maintain some of this genetic variation in the population. Okay, so next question here. Aren't birds also known to upregulate ceramides and other waterproofing molecules when subjected to dry conditions, similar to what you would find with the salamanders? Yes. And if I were smarter, I would have predicted that before I started the gene expression studies. But I think when, you know, when I first got started with amphibians, one of the things that everybody talks about with amphibians is aquaporins. And so I was, you know, I was like, oh, it's got to, maybe it's aquaporins, you know, how they're delivering water to different tissues. And, but I kind of just got, you know, whacked over the head with the ceramide thing. I was like, wow, that totally makes sense. I didn't realize that it would occur over such a short time scale. So for salamanders, we saw this change in ceramide production in about three weeks. From my knowledge of the literature in birds, I think a lot of those comparisons come from seasonal changes in ceramide production. So comparing something like winter to summer, which is, of course, takes place over a longer period of time. So to see not only, you know, this potentially conserved mechanism of waterproofing occur in salamanders as well as birds, and there's also other evidence in, in uh, rodents as well that ceramides in the skin are important. But to see it happen over such a short period of time was really exciting as well. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. This next question is for you, Caroline. This person has asked, did your team collect data on humidity gradients? Yeah, maybe the, so the snow, in addition to impacting the cold exposure and energy use, one of the major things about snow is it's really wet. So indeed, the, you know, we're only looking at sort of the thermal properties of snow, but there are all of these other hygric properties of snow, which are going to be really important. And we do see, so we haven't measured the humidity gradients, but we have seen different impacts of like the beetles in the dry plots will actually literally dry out in some cases. So that's a whole other aspect of snow that we haven't looked at in detail, but is probably going to be important both for the beetles and for the host plant as well, because the willows after a snowy year, there's plenty of snow melt. They're very well hydrated. The plants come out in very good quality. So there will be sort of flow on effects of the um, host plant quality and snowy compared to dry years. So, yeah, definitely the water content of the snow is an important aspect that we're interested in in future. Great. Eric, this question is for you. Do you think your results showing a difference in energy expenditure in response to climate change between birds and mammals might explain why dinosaurs went extinct, whereas mammals survived the KT extinction event? 
Yeah, that's a really cool question and idea. I think, you know, it is kind of funny too, because birds are modern day dinosaurs here. That's all we have left. And uh, we still have our small mammals around. So I think it's, it seems pretty logical to make that argument. But one of the things I would just focus on is, is really understanding how beneficial it is to live a fossorial life, to live, to live underground. And these certain conditions, as Caroline talked about too, it's a completely different environment that helps buffer you in certain cases from environmental variation. And the small mammals, you know, have done pretty well so far over the last century. And even the salamanders as well that live these really cryptic underground lifestyles, you know, there's a sort of, you know, mixed, there is some evidence suggesting that salamanders are, are, you know, doing quite well and can respond well to environmental change as well because of their ability to live underground. So it's something that we really need to think a lot about and, and, and to say that, you know, I think that living underground would certainly played some sort of role in, in small mammals making it through the KT extinction. Okay, cool. Very awesome question. If a very snowy year mm-hmm. is followed by early snow in the next year, can that limit the number of animals who make it to adult overwintering? Yeah, so definitely those snowy years when the beetles and other organisms emerge from overwintering later, that means the growing season is squished into a shorter period. So they have less time to accumulate energy and potentially could fail to reach the correct overwintering stage, which in this species is the adult stage by overwintering. And in other systems and ground squirrels in the Arctic, and we know that this can actually impact juvenile recruitment. You can see mortality because they're just not making it through. And this is really interesting, I think, because there could be different genotypes that develop faster. And so we really need to consider the integration of the whole life cycle, I think, from the wintering stage to the growing season. And that's one of the things that we're interested in doing in this beetle system is sort of resolving the whole life cycle, understanding the consequences of genetic variation across the whole life cycle, including the wintering stages and also the growing season. So yeah, definitely potentially important. hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.